morning again, everybody. Glad to see you here today, and I hope that you had a great week, enjoying all four seasons this week. Um, it's very blustery out there today, but I do enjoy the temperatures. Uh, this past week, I was struck with some wonderful times of awe and wonder with the Lord to see how He has been moving in, in some lives, as I've heard some sh stories that have been shared, and how God is moving in, in line with what we've been talking about in terms of messages. I mean, it's amazing to see how he can work in different ways. Um, I was able to have some good quiet time with the Lord this week. I was able to be humbled uh, in a deeper conversation with the kids this week. And I was able to enjoy how this series is drawing me closer in terms of how God is demonstrating his truth throughout his word. And what dawned on me as I thought about the opening for this message is just a simple question of whether or not you've had to teach something to anyone. It's a very general question I think most of us can be a, answer affirmatively to. I mean, if you have children, you've pretty much taught them everything from how to hold a fork to maybe reading and, and writing and other things. Um, you know, maybe... Maybe in a workplace where you show coworkers how to, to do their job or how to do something a little bit more effectively. Or maybe on, in the interstate where you teach other drivers how to use that little thing called the turn signal or how to go the proper speed in the fast lane. You know, there's lots of things that we teach throughout the week. And, and you know, as I was thinking about these types of examples as it's related to the message that where we're going to be focusing on demonstration this morning, what was convicting to me was this idea of how we teach, or even how we learn, how we observe. I think that we all have our preferred ways of learning, maybe even preferred ways to teach. You know, we, we're all different because we're created differently. We're uniquely talented. And, and sometimes, you know, you, you meet these people that can just read something and know how to do it. Or maybe they can understand a lecture and they can put together the principles and put them into action. Other times, maybe you come across people that like more of a hands-on approach, learning as they're doing things. And, and sometimes even more guided approaches are needed where you're demonstrating each little piece to that person. You know, and the Lord made me think back to when I was teaching swimming lessons. A bunch of little kids um, learning how to swim. And there's a lot of different approaches that you can take. And, you know, I could lecture them and teach them about swimming, and they could understand the theories. You know, but it's completely different when you actually get in the water. It's also completely different to be thrown from the dock and then told, swim. Now, none of the children were hurt as I was a teacher, but they learned how to swim. You know, and, and usually with swim instruction, the kids would need some guidance. Maybe a helping hand to stay afloat, a demonstration of what they needed to do, and practice. And as I thought about that example this week, I wondered how often we are wandering through life. And we feel like maybe we're drowning in life without real demonstrations of what we need to do. And again, it could be seen in a lot of different areas. 
whether it's in our jobs, where maybe our job description doesn't cover what we're actually doing. You know, I could probably fill up a binder of the things that they don't teach me in seminary. Parenting. I mean, there's plenty of books out there about parenting, but very rarely do your children wait for you with patience as you flip through the chapter to find that page on what to do when your child has a blowout in church or in the, in the restaurants. You know, it's, it's interesting as you learn on the job. Marriages. Again, plenty of books, plenty of material. Premarital counseling stuff that goes over some of the basics, but how do you respond in that first argument? How do you respond with those disappointments? Or perhaps the Christian life, where maybe we've been thrown off of the dock and told to swim, or we're told to just go do what the Lord commands and do his will. What does it mean to follow God's will? You know, in many of these examples, many of these instances in life, a lot of times we rely on what's been demonstrated for us. Or perhaps we become like our parents because that's what's been modeled for us. Churches tend to imitate their pastor or that leadership team. Sorry. But, you know, when you think about what's been modeled for you, how you operate your job maybe depends on what's been demonstrated or what's been instructed by the leadership. So, again, we can, we can approach this idea from a lot of different angles, a lot of different vantage points in terms of the examples that we experience in life. But it becomes a question of what are we demonstrating and why? Today, I'd like to talk about a couple of passages in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you want to work your way over to 1 Corinthians 2. And we're going to deal with this issue of demonstration how Paul is walking out his faith before unbelievers. Because as we've been kind of building on this cultural series, there comes a point in time where there's a definite need to address questions or handle objections that people have by demonstrating the truth in our words and our deeds. Trying the best to handle maybe assumptions or moral judgments of the unbelievers and the believers alike. So as we are in 1 Corinthians 2, I'm going to read the first five verses, and this morning, if you are able and willing, I invite you to stand as we read God's word. Beginning in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to, do, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, I just pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truth. Lord, that we can apply what we learned today to the interactions that we have with the opportunities that you give us each week to share your gospel message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
So kind of a, a simple text for us to start off with this morning, one that's always usually convicting to me as a preacher, as someone who brings forth the word of God. Um, I really felt the weight of verse 3 this week as I dealt with some of my own weaknesses, but it was good. You know, and what I want to draw out for us in this passage is how Paul is going to demonstrate his reliance on God as he is preaching the gospel message. You know, and I ask that question for us to ponder in terms of what are we demonstrating in our life? Now, obviously, we want to be demonstrating the Christ life, where we're living out the gospel message in obedience to his commands. So that is the overarching principle that we need to understand as we're moving through a couple of these passages. Paul demonstrated what it looked like to follow the Lord in obedience and in discipleship. And in several points, um, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, imitate me as I am imitating Christ. So he is calling forward to mind this demonstration that he has for the people to pay attention to. And as we look at verse 1, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, it's a good comparison because of what we went over last week in terms of when he was in Athens in Acts 17. And if you recall, in chapter 18, that's when he goes to Corinth. So you can see a comparison and even a, a contrast in his styles. You know, some people would think that Paul is, is changing up how he is presenting the gospel because, you know, he felt maybe it wasn't right in terms of what he was doing there in Athens, and he's changing it up, and he's doing something different in Corinth. There's not a ton of weight to that because of what we're going to go over in uh, 1 Corinthians 9 a little bit later to where Paul becomes all things to all people. Understanding that depending on who he was in front of depends on, or it, it dictated how he would present the gospel message. So what we want to see is that he can change how he is giving the gospel message to people. The message doesn't change. His approach to how he delivers it does. And here it says he's not coming with lofty speech or with wisdom, like he may have done for those in Athens, because that was what their specialty was, being in the marketplace, listening and reasoning uh, to logical arguments. You know, it's understood that when... When a person would go into a city for the first time and he is trying to gain a following, he would go and he would set up a meeting to give a speech to the people in the city. And he, and he would come and he would praise the city. You know, it, it's similar to like if you go to a concert and you love this artist and the artist comes out and he's like, woohoo, Omaha, and everybody cheers and praises. You know, so it was a cultural thing. And if you got enough followers from that initial meeting, then you would stay and you would continue to teach these students. That was kind of a normal practice uh, of what people would do. Paul points out, look, I'm not coming to you like that. I didn't come to you that way, right? With the ways that the Greek philosophers or maybe the sophists would come to do to spout their wisdom. They would be teachers that would be more clever in how they were presenting things, they would give fallacious arguments, they would pander to your popularity. You know, in, in 2 Corinthians, the second letter that he gives, in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, for we are not, like so many, peddlers of the word of God, but as men of sincerity, 
as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So Paul is expressing that he has sincerity, genuineness in what he is presenting to them. It's not like he's a popsicle salesman to the Eskimos, right? He's not trying to get in with the culture and try to pander to them in different ways. The words and the speeches are not meant to deceive, but rather to be sincere, to be truthful. In his words, of course, there's going to be persuasion as well. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. So, as Paul's talking about how he, he's coming to them, or how he did come to them, he wants to remind them, not of himself, but rather of Christ. Because he comes knowing nothing except Christ and him crucified. He's not trying to pander to them. He's not trying to puff them up. He's not trying to do things as a way to think them, for them to think better of themselves or of him. He doesn't want to sound eloquent. He doesn't want to boast in himself. Instead, he wants to point everything back to Christ. He wanted to demonstrate that he was only proclaiming Christ. Again, my question, what is it that we are demonstrating? You know, this proclamation that he gives is simply Christ crucified. And as he is saying crucified, he's not meaning like that's the only thing that he ever said about Christ. You know, he spoke nothing but the cross. Instead, he put an emphasis on what the cross meant in terms of humiliation. You know, the understanding would be cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. The understanding to the Greeks would be if you were crucified, you were a lawbreaker to Rome. You were not a good character. And instead, as Paul is boasting in the crucifixion, what happens is it makes the resurrection pop all the more. If you were to study 1 Corinthians 15, that whole chapter deals with the resurrection of Christ and the importance of that to salvation and to the faith of the people. So he is using, he's using Christ at his, at his lowest form to show how much more the resurrection means. Then you look over to verse 3. You know, I think that the reason that Paul felt weakness, fear, that he trembled greatly is that as he entered into Corinth, it, it's probably that he sensed his personal inadequacies as he met with all of the issues that were going on there. You know, when you read through the book of Corinthians, it's a laundry list. There's divisions everywhere. There's sexual immorality. There's sin. There's... There's not taking the communion right. There's order in worship. There's not understanding love. You know, it, it seemed like a pretty messed up place. It's good to see that church doesn't change from century to century. You know, church is full of broken people who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, united in spirit to worship him. You know, there is no perfect church. But you see you see the emphasis that he has in terms of these struggles, and it's hard. It's not an easy task. But Paul's emphasis is not on his own words. Paul's emphasis, or his, his emphasis and his preaching was a demonstration. It's not a performance. It's not eloquent. It's not lofty words of wisdom. But rather, it's a demonstration of the spirit and of power. See, conviction came as a result of, of the Holy Spirit's power, 
not his cleverness, not his preaching style. We have to understand that the demonstration here is emphasizing that the conviction doesn't come from persuasive arguments. It doesn't come from his preaching. It comes as the Holy Spirit opens up the blind eyes. And that's still true for us today as we share the gospel message. Now, when we look at verse 5, I treat this as a warning against self-reliance on a part of the preacher or as a part of a Christian. You know, as a pastor who delivers the word of God, I need to use every gift that he has given me, every talent that he has given me. But I don't put my hope and my confidence in myself when it comes to conviction. You know, my jokes, my wisdom, it might dazzle you. It might overwhelm you. It might be the greatest thing you hear all day. But it does not get to the depths of the soul. That conviction has to come from the Holy Spirit. I must demonstrate the truth. I must present it in a way that you could be positioned to meet with him. Because here's the crux of the matter. I can have the most theologically sound message that you've ever heard. I can have such sound logical arguments, yet be totally unconvinced. The role and the power has to be in the spirit, not in me. You know, when we're studying the word of God, the power is in the word of God. It comes from him. We are simply vessels and messengers to carry that on. He is the main focus. Paul explains that as a, his, his ministry is a demonstration of spirit and power. And this was his approach so that people would recognize that their faith rested in the supernatural. That was that foundation. It wasn't in the natural. It wasn't in Paul. You know, earlier or later in Corinthians, he, he, he chastises them because some are like, I follow a Paul. No, I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. Baloney. You follow Christ. That's the one that you need to follow. You know, and, and as we talked about last week, the, how the attraction is, the attraction has to be in terms of the gospel message. That's where it needs to be based. And then as we go out, we demonstrate our faith and our belief in the gospel message where we are understanding the importance of where that foundation is laid. It's not in the preacher. It's not in us, but it's, it, it is in him. Go ahead and turn over to chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. So in chapter 2, it kind of focused more on how Paul came and the words that he used. In chapter 9, we're going to look a little bit more in terms of some of the actions that he did. So in chapter 9, I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do, it for, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, 
that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in the race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So with this section, um, I think obviously this section could bring about some confusion in terms of what does it actually mean for Paul to become like certain groups of people and how can that translate down to us? Um, like to the drug dealers, I become a drug dealer. Is that what he's meaning there? You know, so it, it could bring some confusion. I think that if we try to take things one-to-one like that, we can kind of get tripped up pretty easily. So I like to focus on verse 19, um, the second half of 22 and 23, to kind of get the intention of what Paul is bringing about here. You know, he's, when you read the, more of the context of chapter 19, he's claiming about how he is free from all things. So at this point in time with Corinth, he is not being paid by the local churches. Earlier he talks about Peter's wife, and, you know, he's not married, so he's not tied down in certain ways. Instead, he is free to serve in the ways that God calls him to serve because he is first and foremost a servant of Christ, and wherever Christ tells him to go, he goes. So he's able to go among the Jews. He's able to go among the Gentiles and to those who are weak. Um, Weak probably meaning more so in their consciences in terms of how they deal with moral matters and stuff like that. In all of these examples, he is referring to unbelievers because he, his hope is that he might win some. Okay, so he's speaking to the unbelievers, um, and he's showing, look, I'm not held to the law of Moses or to the law of the Gentiles, but rather the law of Christ. Now, he explains this a little bit further in the book of Galatians, if you want to understand more about the law of Christ. Um, but it's the code of responsibilities that Christ and the apostles taught, the commands that Christ taught. Um, it's not this, some of them might be the same commands that might be found in the Mosaic Law, but the law of Christ and the Mosaic Law are completely different things. Um, but we can get easily swayed and um, tainted by whatever we might be hanging out with, so we have to be careful with how we're understanding that. You know, and how he was living then through this description is a demonstration of his faith where people could see what he was doing. They could hear the answers to maybe the questions that they had as he spoke of Christ. Again, in chapter two, it focused more on the words that he used. Here it's more of the actions in terms of how he became a Jew to the Jews. I think it's important for us to understand this. You know, how do you become all things to all people without being of the world. It's kind of quite the quandary when we think about it, when we try to dabble in some of those areas. But one thing I think we need to understand is that we're all uniquely gifted in how God has created us. And he has called each of us to do certain things. He's given us all different convictions. Now these convictions can change over time based on the seasons and, and the study and the maturity that you have. There are gifts and there are connections that each one of us have that no one else in this room has. 
There are opportunities that you have to unbelievers that have no connection to anyone else in this room. And God has uniquely gifted you for those purposes. It can be exciting, and it can be scary. So some thoughts to ponder. I'm not going to go verse by verse through this part, but just kind of talk in general over it. When we read this passage, you know, maybe you might think of the phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. It's a common phrase, but that would not have been Paul's perspective as he's approaching um, this passage, as he's approaching what he does among the people. You know, he's not indulging in the things of the world as a way to be overtaken by them, but he would immerse himself in the environments, such as the marketplace or the agora in Athens, where he would meet the people where they're at, he would discuss things and reason as the sophists did. And then when he came to Corinth, he would go into the synagogues and he would reason with the Jews and the Greeks because that's where they met. He would go before the tribunals. Everything he did, he did for the sake of the gospel. You know, initially, as we approach this passage, what convictions do we have to go to different places? Is it for the sake of the gospel? Do, ever th do we ever think, I'm going to go to the grocery store today for the sake of the gospel? Or is it to fill our own bellies? Because there are opportunities everywhere if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Now, there has been and there are probably still some degrees where this is true within Christianity that would put barriers or boundaries on different things. Like, well, you can't go to the movie theater. You can't go to bars. You can't go to these other places because they're so devoid of God. Perhaps even believing to an extent that it would be sinful if you do. You know, I get convictions that people carry. But I also think with that view, it would silence the chance of testimony or the chance to share the gospel if you're going to hold to those types of convictions. Because honestly, it doesn't matter where you go, everywhere nowadays is anti-God. And you can carry that to the nth degree. But this isn't also a place to just say you have a license to go into any spiritually dark place completely unprepared. Again, the convictions have to come from the Lord understanding where he is calling you to go and how he has gifted you. Paul's heart is that he would do whatever it takes to win somebody for Christ. That was his demonstration. And I'm sure it was not without controversy. I mean, we could just think about him even speaking to the Gentiles. That caused a ruckus in the early church. Again, personally, I think it does come down to a matter of conviction and what God is calling you to do. But know that you will have to battle the assumptions of the unbelievers as well as the expectations or the beliefs of the believers around you. You know, there will be, there should be some discernment and wise counsel about what you're going to be doing. And there might be some wrestling, some understanding of the teachings on the weaker brother or sister and how you push forward in that path to take the gospel message to the unreached places. Because let's be honest, it's not like the unbelievers in our cities and our towns are breaking down our doors to come in and hear the gospel message. 
we have to take it to them. We have to go where he calls us to go. Know that every day you have the opportunities. And each person is gifted a little bit differently. Each person has maybe a a slightly different conviction about where they're going to take the gospel message. But we can demonstrate our faith in the power of the Spirit by walking in obedience and sharing the truth of the gospel message. And some things just take some common sense. Like it does not make sense for me to start a single mom's ministry. You know, I can support it. I can get behind it. But it doesn't make sense for me to be the head of that. So again, some of these things just take some common sense. And you know, I've broken through to people in very unique ways where I've seen the Lord work and and just move magnificently. There are ways in which the Lord has showed me. They are meeting needs with people that that might seem controversial. Especially for a church people to think, pastor's doing that? Why? And I have to answer that question in my own heart. Is it because of that conviction to try to win some for the gospel message? Or is it because of my own selfishness? Let me give you an example. A few years ago, my neighbor took her life. It was a very hard season. And I went and met with the family at night. It was around a campfire. We had gotten there late. I had the kids with me. Um, Her whole family are non-believers. Elaine had some conversations with her. I had some conversations with her. And Willie, her husband, asked me to do the funeral. So I go and I'm meeting with the family and it's around the campfire. It's late September. Half the people are already drunk. And I go up and we sit down and we're starting to to make some connections with people and Willie comes up, gives me a hug and he hands me a beer. I'm drinking a beer with him and it gets around to where people are asking, who are you? I'm like, oh, well I'm the neighbor. Oh, okay. And I'm doing the funeral service tomorrow, my pastor. Every head turned to look. And there's two things I think that were happening. One, those that were pretty far gone started to feel a little bit of guilt. Two, all of the assumptions they had about church people melted away when they saw me grieving with their dad in his way. They opened up, and I got to that next day, share the gospel message with people that had never heard the gospel message before. Now, her grandson moved in for about a year, newlywed, new couple, and I got to have conversations with him. He He was one that was pretty far gone that day. But I got to have conversations with him about life and death, about faith. I got to help him as a new husband. I got to celebrate when he found out that his wife was pregnant. And then they moved to Maryland, um, pregnant with triplets. How's that for a start? 
But you know, it was a connection that I had in his life. After he moved, Willie sold the house, and the new people that are there, they're unbelievers as well. They're also bikers. So I figure a good way to break into conversation is to go riding with them. So, of course, I had to get a motorcycle, <laughs> which people might think is stupid or dumb or dangerous. But if I can share the gospel with him because of that connection, why wouldn't I? Now, I will admit, there might be some selfishness there to have a little bit of wind therapy. Sure. but it also might turn in a place where I might not have that opportunity. But as I'm praying about it, I see the opportunity could be Noah's. Because Noah has been riding in the lot with his dirt bike. He's been following their young son around on his e-bike and really making that connection. So pray for different ways that we can demonstrate our faith to our neighbors. I have so many different stories to share, whether that's about tattoos or trying to learn the guitar or playing video games. You know, we have different windows of connections with people. We have a uniqueness to serve the Lord in the ways that he has designed us to serve. It's not a cookie-cutter thing. Now, truth is absolute, for sure. But how he has created you is intentionally designed to interact with those people that he puts you in contact with. Because we know that people are always going to be watching us, that they're always going to be judging us, that they're always going to be looking for how we're demonstrating our faith. And we need to do it properly in terms of where is our devotion centralized? Is it on the things around us or is it on the gospel message? Is it Christ? You know, the places that we meet people are simply means to share Christ. So I go back up to my question. What is it that we are demonstrating? Do we even think about sharing Christ with the new people that we meet? Or that God takes us to certain places to bring Christ there? Whether that's a new restaurant where you get to share with a server that you don't know? Or a new neighborhood? Or to missions trips? What does it mean to become all things for all people so that we might save some. We need to think about how we are demonstrating our, our faith before those who see us. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to study more about how we interact with the culture, I just pray that you would continue to put it on our hearts and minds that you are first and foremost in our life, that everything is an outgrowth from that. So I pray for those who may not know you as their Savior, Lord, that you would be able to continue to put people in their lives to, to plant seeds, to water, and to harvest. And Lord, for those of us who have been Christians for so long, I just pray that you would continue to renew that passion and that fire to share your truth. that you would help us to have connections with unbelievers. But not to go unprepared, but to know the purpose of why we interact with others, why we demonstrate our faith. 
Lord, help us to know that everything that we do is for your glory. Lord, I thank you for this time today to, to worship you, to celebrate you. And I pray that you would continue to give us strength this week. That we would know your peace. And that you would be giving us the words to say. Lord, I pray that as we demonstrate, it could be in power and in the spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.